For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On Monday morning, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern got what was for him some pretty great news. Hey, Mark, what a day. Hi. Wow. What a day it is. Mark covers the Supreme Court for Slate. Feels like it's been too long since we had a good day, right? Okay, so your job in June is to basically hit refresh on the Supreme Court's website, right? Correct. Correct. You're expecting opinions. You're hitting refresh. What do you see first? So I see the Bostock case pop up, and I see that Neil Gorsuch has written it. The Bostock case was about workplace discrimination. Monday's decision declares it's illegal to discriminate against gay and transgender people in the workplace. And this opinion was written by one of the five conservative justices. I thought, oh, it's Gorsuch. That means that the good guys won. The good guys won? Yeah. Interesting. So you thought you knew that Gorsuch would do this. Yeah. I certainly didn't think that Neil Gorsuch, the first Supreme Court justice appointed by President Trump, was a shoo-in to secure the civil rights of gay and trans Americans. You know, Neil Gorsuch is an interesting man in that I think he delights in upending expectations. And I think that like his predecessor, Justice Scalia, he sometimes delights in uh, reaching seemingly liberal outcomes by following a conservative path. Mark says the power of his opinion is its simplicity. (sighs) Gorsuch just said, look, these are folks who work just like you and me, and uh, this law just happens to protect them, and that's what I'm going to say and nothing more. I almost felt like there was something historic and momentous in how casually Justice Gorsuch brought transgender people into the legal fold. This was the court formally and for the first time officially embracing the idea that transgender people are just people like you and me and everybody else, that they're human beings, that they deserve the benefit of the law uh, when the law seems to benefit them, that they're nothing to be afraid of and that they're nothing to vilify. Today on the show, how this conservative Supreme Court ended up handing a win to transgender and gay Americans, and why Mark Joseph Stern thinks this victory might clear the way for progressives to face some tough losses in the next few weeks. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, 
real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So let's explain the cases that we're talking about here. This is a couple of cases that were ruled on together. One that was brought by a couple of gay men who were fired after revealing that they were gay. One brought by a a transgender woman who was fired after revealing that she was trans. So can you just refresh our memories about the cases? Um, Yeah. So in one of them, there was a gay skydiver uh, who actually is now dead and his estate is carrying the case forward. And he was essentially fired for being gay. Uh, and said, hey, that's federal sex discrimination. You're taking my sex into account. The other gay rights case was brought by Gerald Bostock, who worked in Clayton County, Georgia, and he actually worked for the county as a child welfare advocate. He was fired for being gay after joining a gay softball league. And the final case involves Amy Stevens, who is now dead, and she died quite recently. She is a transgender woman who worked at a funeral home and was fired for being trans. Look, the facts of the cases are all really simple, straightforward. Gorsuch didn't even spend that much time on them. These are just cut and dry examples of people who are good at their jobs, who aren't causing any problems, but who happen to be LGBTQ. And so their bosses fired them for it. And I think in a sense, these are sort of like good test cases because there's no complications here. There's no side issues. It's just like up or down vote, guys. Is this or is this not a form of sex discrimination? And the argument that Gorsuch made was really, really simple. And it was the same argument that was made by the lower courts, I believe, that basically the Civil Rights Act of 1964 covers sexual orientation and and gender preference because those can't be separated out from your gender, right? Right. It's just impossible. And no one here is claiming that sex literally means sexual orientation. But what they're saying is when you discriminate against a gay employee, you are punishing them for having a partner or multiple romantic partners of the same sex. You're saying, hey, if you, my male employee, were a woman and a woman were dating men, it'd be totally fine. But since you're a man and you're dating men, you got to go. You just can't take the employee's sex out of that equation. And it's very similar, if not even more straightforward, with transgender people. When an employer discriminates against a, a trans worker, that employer is punishing the worker for failing to conform to the sex that they were assigned at birth. The employer is basically thinking about nothing but their sex. And so <laughs> what Gorsuch says is, look, you know, we keep using this word over and over again to describe what's going on here, right? It seems pretty clear that you can't take sex out of the equation. And that forces us to acknowledge, whether we like it or not, that the Civil Rights Act already protects LGBTQ people from employment discrimination. Something I hadn't processed until the decision came down was that this was the court's first ruling on LGBT rights since Anthony Kennedy had retired. And he wrote all the majority opinions in the court's major gay rights decisions. Yes. And uh, when he left the courts, many of us were quite fearful uh, of what would happen to LGBTQ equality. And I think rightly so, because Kennedy's successor, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, actually dissented from Monday's decision. There are still a lot of questions about how far this court will go in protecting LGBTQ equality. But this is definitely a landmark win. And given that it was 6-3, I don't really see it getting reversed anytime soon. 
Hmm. Can we talk about the dissensions? Because you mentioned Justice Kavanaugh dissented, but notably, he wrote his own dissent. He did not sign on to the dissent that Samuel Alito wrote. How are these dissents different? So they were different in tone primarily, I think. Alito is generally kind of a peevish guy. He's very irritable. He's very cranky. He doesn't seem to be there to make friends, uh, to put it lightly. He will often be super snarky about his fellow colleagues. And uh, he's also like very much not a fan of LGBTQ people. I think it's, it's perfectly clear from his writings and his questions on the bench that he does not think that gay, bisexual, and transgender people deserve equal rights. And he's infuriated that he is on a court that keeps expanding these rights to the people he doesn't really like. Whereas Justice Kavanaugh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is younger than Justice Alito. Justice Alito is a boomer. Brett Kavanaugh is Gen X. I think Kavanaugh is much more relaxed about this kind of stuff. He's not nearly as snarky or cranky as Alito in the first place. And I also don't think he minds when the court hands a victory to LGBTQ people. And really, Kavanaugh ended his opinion after many pages of saying like, you don't deserve equality, LGBTQ people. This law has been misinterpreted. He turns around at the very end and says, but now that you've gotten the victory, congratulations, you can, quote, take pride in today's result. And that's just (laughs) not the kind of thing Sam Alito would ever, ever write. You had this great way of talking about this case. You said it was a hack test because it was a challenge to the conservative justices to stick by their principles, even when that would mean a liberal outcome. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so... I think that uh, Vox's Ian Milheiser originated this term. It's widely used today. I did think this was a hack test because the conservative justices, to varying degrees, espouse a particular method of judicial interpretation called textualism. And you shouldn't be scared by that word because it really just means you look at the text of the law. Uh, It's a pretty simple concept. And the idea is we aren't looking at legislative intent. We aren't looking at legislative history. We aren't going back and trying to figure out what Congress may or may not have wanted this law to mean. What we are looking at are the words that Congress enacted into law. And that's it. We just look at their plain meaning. And as I hope I have described clearly, um, this case presented a pretty straightforward application of textualism. You, You say, okay, what does it mean to discriminate because of sex? Can you discriminate in these ways without taking sex into account? Oh, well, if you can't, then this kind of discrimination is illegal. Simple as that. If you want to argue the other side of this case, if you want to try to argue against LGBTQ rights, you really have to go beyond the text and you have to start looking at what Congress meant when it passed this law in 1964. You have to try to divine the mental processes of of lawmakers as they drafted and took votes on this law. Which is kind of what Alito does in his dissent. It's exactly what he does. And it's incredibly hypocritical because he constantly says that we are not supposed to be looking at legislative history, that we are not supposed to be trying to guess what Congress would have wanted, that we're only supposed to apply the text, the four corners of the statute, and that's it. And yet suddenly, when it turns out the text helps gender and sexual minorities, Alito turns around and says, never mind, 
Never mind. No more textualism. You can have a little textualism as a treat, but when the stakes are this high, I'm going to turn around and I'm just going to go full, like, I don't know, living constitutionalist, uh, update the statutes, evolving understandings of Congresses, you know, throw all of these crazy terms out that I normally spurn and use them to build my way to an anti-LGBTQ conclusion that has strayed really far from the actual text of the law. <laughs> you also, you said Gorsuch and Roberts, because John Roberts also was part of the majority opinion here. They stood their ground and you gave them credit for that. Were you surprised that this was the outcome, that these two conservative justices made this decision? I did feel that there was a, a real chance that Justice Gorsuch would reach what I think is the right result here. I was more surprised about Roberts. I didn't really see him voting this way based on oral arguments, but he can often be a wild card. I'm a little surprised, not just that those two justices voted this way, but that they stood their ground over the following months. Remember, this is a case that was argued in October, right? It doesn't usually take the court so long to decide October cases. They usually come down before June. The justices spent a very long time on this. Uh, and yet Gorsuch's opinion for the court is only 29 pages. The rest of it, uh, more than like 130 pages, is dissents. And I think it's pretty clear that not just Alito and Kavanaugh, but the broader conservative legal movement put a ton of pressure on the conservative justices to toe the line in this case. And we should remind people, Gorsuch was the first justice that President Trump put there. And he was put there after there was so much drama around who would get that Supreme Court seat. Right. I mean, just remember, Republicans held Gorsuch's seat open for more than a year to ensure that a conservative would be able to hold that seat. That blockade was not cheap. Conservative dark money groups spent a huge amount of money. I think the figure was around $17 million to hold the seat open and then to get Gorsuch onto that seat. These donors who give money to these conservative judicial groups, they want a return on their investment. They aren't just throwing millions of dollars at Neil Gorsuch because they think he's a cool guy and they want to drink a beer with him. They want <laughs> certain outcomes. And I think that these judges still really want to be treated as members of the in-group, as friends of the conservative movement, as Federalist Society diehards. Justice Gorsuch uh, still speaks at Federalist Society events. He was signing books, his own books, uh, at the most recent Federalist Society convention. I think he was only there for the royalties, but whatever. It's definitely true that billionaires cannot directly exert influence over the justices. But when... Like, for instance, Carrie Severino, right? She runs the Judicial Crisis Network, okay? She personally dispersed the $17 million that was spent getting Gorsuch on the bench. She was at his swearing-in ceremony at the White House. And this morning, she went out on Twitter and trashed the guy in a widely shared thread that I'm sure will get back to him and his clerks and possibly his family. And 
he's going to run into Carrie Severino at the first post-COVID dinner party that happens in Washington, D.C. And she's going to be speaking for the dark money donors who got him on the court. And I think it it can sound a little silly, like, oh, do they really care that much about social dynamics and dinner parties? Um, yes, they actually do. And so it actually does take some backbone for Neil Gorsuch to stand up to those people. And the same goes for Roberts. Although, like you said, I think with Roberts, the the Republicans abandoned him a long time ago. They view him as a defector, as a traitor because of his Obamacare votes. And so I think they just sort of shook their heads when they saw his vote today and said, yeah, that's the old traitor Johnny Roberts. We would have thrown him overboard a long time ago if we could. (laughs) You said the timing of this decision couldn't be worse for the Trump administration. Why? two things. I guess the first, just in starkly political terms, is that Trump is trying to rev up his campaign and uh, base it partly on his judicial nominations, right? He delivered for the Republican base. He gave them all of these Federalist Society judges. But now, arguably, the most prominent appointee that he made has defected, according to conservatives, right? He He has given liberals something that liberals want. But in a more, I think, concrete way. The Supreme Court has just blown up the legal theory that the Trump administration has been using to roll back protections for LGBTQ Americans. Donald Trump has not managed to pass a single anti-LGBTQ bill in Congress, right? What he has done instead is had his various cabinet members, people like Ben Carson and Roger Severino and Betsy DeVos, rewrite federal civil rights laws that bar discrimination because of sex to exclude LGBTQ people, basically undoing a lot of the rules that the Obama administration created. And and just on Friday, the Department of Health and Human Services issued one of these rules and said transgender people are not protected by Obamacare because it only talks about sex. Uh, So insurers can discriminate against trans people. Medical providers can discriminate against trans people. And the Supreme Court just said, that's wrong. The Supreme Court just waltzed up and said, you have this whole thing backwards. So can those decisions still stand? They will not hold up in court. Groups like the ACLU will come into court and say, you can't do this. The Supreme Court already said that trans discrimination is sex discrimination. And federal judges are going to look at Monday's decision and say, yeah, you know what? You're right. The Supreme Court said trans people are protected by these laws that bar sex discrimination. So you don't get to write them out of of the federal regulations. At the beginning of this term, you came on the show and you basically said, get ready for hellfire from the Supreme Court. I went back and listened and you literally said, I am here to terrify you, make you extremely scared of the judiciary for the rest of your life. Does a decision like this change that opinion? Oh, no. In some ways, it actually frightens me even more. Why? Uh, I think that what's happened here is that Roberts and Gorsuch have just given themselves a huge amount of political capital. Um, Remember, you know, the court doesn't have its own standing army to enforce its decisions. It relies basically on magic, our our belief in its institutional legitimacy to have any power at all. Um, And 
if the court had only issued a ton of conservative opinions this term, if the court had said no to abortion, said no to DACA, said no to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, just totally crashed through all of these liberal projects, I think that court packing would be a real conversation on this campaign trail. I think that Joe Biden would would be forced to take a position on court packing. And I mm-hmm. think that you would see a lot of liberals saying, we're not even paying attention to the court because it's illegitimate. But instead, what's happened is that you have a day of everybody on the left celebrating the Supreme Court and celebrating Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts. And I think that gives both of them a huge amount of cover to now turn around and say, okay, well, we're going to erode Roe v. Wade. We're going to let Trump hide his financial records. Uh, We're going to gut the independence of the CFPB. And they can still turn around and say, but, you know, we are impartial and independent and you should respect our decisions because sometimes we swing to the left. This is a classic trick. This is what Roberts has been doing for a long time. I don't think that it should cheapen the victory for LGBTQ rights, uh, but I do think it should put everyone on high alert for some pretty far-right decisions that may be coming down the pipeline. I'm so glad you said that, because when I heard about this ruling, my main thought was, oh, this was the easy one, exactly. like the one where you could just say, well, we're really we're hemmed in here. Like the text of the Civil Rights Act says this thing and that's the way the cookie crumbles. And then we're still waiting for a bunch of other decisions that you alluded to there. What are we still waiting for? Yeah, so we're still waiting for the DACA decision to learn whether Trump can deport dreamers. Uh, we're still waiting on the Trump tax records case where we learn uh, if if basically New York State can get its hands on Trump's tax returns and whether the House of Representatives can get its hands on his financial disclosures. Those are big cases. They sound dry, but like the, the, the basic question is whether Trump is above the law, right? Um, we, we have the Louisiana abortion case, which asks if states can essentially regulate abortion clinics out of existence. We have a case asking whether the president can fire the director of uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau whenever he wants, which would really make the whole agency much less independent. You know, we've got a lot of high-profile decisions that I think are likely to all swing rightward. I think that (laughs) conservatives win most of those cases. I think there's some hope on the financial records case, but for the most part, this is still going to be a bloodbath, I think, for for liberals. It's not going to be like a a kind of 50-50 split where each side gets a little bit of what it wants. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I look forward to the hellscape that awaits us. Stock up on your Xanax and beta blockers. (laughs) Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law for Slate. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.